As Brian said, the Lord will be speaking to us through Psalm 40 this morning, if you'd like to start turning there. Um, I went to college in the days before cell phones, and that meant that if you needed to get in touch with somebody back home, you had two options. You could send a letter through the post, which took a while, or you could call, which cost a lot if it was long distance. And in my case, I was going to school in a different state than my parents lived, so we limited our phone calls. But I remember one time when I needed to get in touch with uh, my folks, and I called, and much to my surprise, I got a recording that the number was disconnected. So I hung up, and I tried again, being very careful to get the number right, and I got the same result. So I told my roommate, our families were friends, and he called his parents, who tried calling my parents locally, and they got the same result. So before it was all over, my roommate's parents had driven to my parents' house to see if everything was okay, which it was, and my parents then called me from their new number. And a day or two later, I got a letter in the mail that they had posted a day or two prior telling me that they were changing their number. So, <laughs> my, my friends had a good time with that letter. They said, so what did it say, Phil? Hi, son, we've moved. Try to find us. <laughs> but uh, anyway, you probably have your own stories about something that went wrong because a message didn't get through. Maybe the message was never even sent, like when one of your kids runs off with a friend and doesn't tell you. But uh, in any way, our passage this morning is designed to prevent the problems that arise when an important message isn't sent. So if you haven't already, please turn to Psalm 40. And if you're using one of the blue Bibles uh, in the pew in front of you, you'll find it on page 518. Psalm 40. Hear the word of the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. 
my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. This is the word of the Lord. Our psalm this morning has a beautiful structure to it that's called a chiasm. A chiasm in literature is when a composition has a mirror image involved. It's named after the Greek letter chi, which looks like our letter X. So the the right half is a mirror image of the left half. Our psalm has seven stanzas. And if you're reading in the ESV, as many of you are, you'll easily be able to see them because they're separated by a little extra space. and the, the structure of how these stanzas form this, uh, this mirror image, this chiasm, is as we see here on the, the visual. And for those who are just listening and can't see what's on the screen, here's how you can reconstruct this. Take a piece of paper, start over at the left-hand margin, and write stanza one, verses one through three. Then on the next line, indent a little bit, put stanza two, verses four and five. On the next line, indent a little more, stanza three, verses six and seven. The next line, indent yet more, stanza four, verses eight through 10. Then on the next line, back up your indent a little bit so it lines up under stanza three, and write stanza five, verses 11 and 12. Then on the next line, back up again so it lines up under stanza two, and say stanza six, verses 13 to 15. And then finally, clear back at the left-hand margin, Stanza 7, verses 16 through 17. We'll see that this structure, and you can kind of see how it uh, reflects back on itself, will give us a lot of insight. For example, we'll see a lot more from stanza 5 as we compare it to its counterpart, stanza 3. We'll also get a better understanding of the psalm as a whole if we pay special attention to stanza 4, the one that's right in the middle. Often when an author composes something in this chiastic form, it's the thing that's smack in the middle that receives the strongest emphasis. It's uh, the main emphasis of the author. Another way of thinking about working through something structured like this is like climbing a mountain. We'll go up one side, up to the top, and then we'll go back down the other side. As we come back down, we'll revisit the same altitudes that we crossed on our way up but we'll see things from a different perspective. So let's use that metaphor this morning and go on a journey together, climbing up the mountain of Psalm 40 and descending down the other side. And we'll begin with the first verse, which is verses, or the first stanza, excuse me, which is verses one through three. The opening stanza of the psalm gives us an overview of the whole, and it actually leads us to the first major point of the psalm. We can summarize this stanza with three words, waiting, rescue, and testimony. 
Verse 1 says, I waited patiently for the Lord. So the first thing David wants us to know is that he waited for the Lord. Waited patiently is too mild a translation. The Hebrew really suggests something more like, I waited and waited and waited. So the first thing we need to know is what waiting and waiting for the Lord means. And I'd like us to consider two things. First, waiting for the Lord means trusting him rather than relying on other things or other people. And this may be the most important message of the whole psalm. Everything David has to say is for those who are looking to him for rescue rather than relying on other options. If there is no rescue from the Lord, there will be no rescue at all. And everything David has to say is to those who trust the Lord enough to wait for him to answer, even if it takes a while. This already challenges us, does it not? (laughs) We're only in the first line of the psalm and we're already finding ourselves challenged. Um, We live in a culture of instant gratification and we're tempted either right from the outset to put our trust in something that seems more under our control or we give up on God when his rescue seems too slow for our timing. We'll come back to that momentarily, Uh, but for now that leads us to our second point about waiting, and that is waiting for the Lord is not sitting around doing nothing. It is an active and often difficult exercise of faith. Listen to Paul's description of Abraham's waiting for the Lord to give him a son. This is from Romans 4. He, Abraham, believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what had been spoken, so will your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. You can see that waiting for the Lord is an active exercise of faith. It's like a small child frightened by a dog. So think of yourself out on a walk with a little child, and you're walking along, and here's a dog off in the distance, and it sees you and starts running your direction. Well, the child is terrified, so she turns to you, and she looks up, and she holds up her arms for you to pick her up. So she's looking just to you to rescue her. She doesn't have any other options. She believes that you can, and she's just going to wait until you do looking in your eyes with her hands up until you pick her up to save her from the scary dog. That's a really good picture of what waiting for the Lord means. When we wait for the Lord, what happens? Our second word, rescue. Let's start again. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, 
making my steps secure. So just like a good parent, God delights to rescue those who look to him and wait for him to do so. Verse 3 adds something new, which gets us to the testimony part. Waiting, rescue, testimony. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So as part of the rescue, God gave David a song, a song of praise to the God who had delivered him. This was written well before houses had showers to sing in. So, the song David has in mind was sung in public. David tells and even sings in public about the deliverance God has given to him. Note the purpose of David's singing. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. This is important. And it gets us to the first major message of the psalm, which is this. God delivers his saints so that others will see and fear him. God delivers his saints so that others will see and fear him. What does this mean for us? First, we need to wait for the Lord and him alone. And second... We need to tell about the rescue when it happens. So we could paraphrase the first stanza this way. I waited for the Lord. He rescued me, and I'm going to tell about it. Let's take our next step now up the mountain with stanza two, which is verses four and five. They tell much the same story, and we can summarize them with the words blessing and testimony. First, the blessing. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. What does this add to the first stanza? Well, two things. First, we see that what the first stanza said is true for all of us. David isn't a special case. God blesses and rescues all who put their trust in him. And second, we see this stanza emphasizing something that we mentioned before in the first, that waiting on the Lord means not resorting to other options, not turning to other things. And I'd like us to think about that for a moment. What are some of the things that we tend to trust in rather than the Lord? We trust in military might to keep us safe. We trust in politics to make the world right. We trust in riches to make us happy. We trust in people to fulfill us. And most of all, we trust in our own wisdom. Let's do a quick exercise together. Take a few seconds to think about one or two of the more significant decisions that are facing you now. These can be big, they can be little, but uh, what are one or two of the things, situations you need to deal with or decisions that you're faced with right now? And as we get get those in mind, the question for us is, 
in how many of those decisions are you consciously looking to God's word for direction and guidance to do things according to his principles? And in how many of those decisions, if you're honest, you'd say, I'm pretty sure God would call me probably to do something like this, but I just don't want to, and I plan to do something else instead. This is often where we live. But verse 4 says that the person who makes the Lord his trust is the one who flourishes. That is the one who lives under the Lord's blessing. And the blessing is so great that we again see it erupting into song. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. We see again how important it is to testify to God's goodness to us because God delivers his saints so that others will see and fear him and trust him. So, our first step up the mountain said, God rescued me when I called upon him and waited for him, and I'm going to tell about it. Stanza 2 says, God rescues everyone and blesses everyone who puts their trust in him. And I'm going to tell about it. So, let's take our next step. Stanza 3. This is verses 6 through 8. And we can summarize it as God's work, transformation. This one forces us to think a bit. Verse 6 tells us that God doesn't want something. He doesn't want sacrifice and offering. And again, a little later, he doesn't want burnt offering and sin offering. Now that is a rather amazing statement written in a day when God had given extensive instructions about those very things, and he very definitely required sacrifice and offering as part of Israel's worship. So it would seem in its original context that David is speaking hyperbolically. He's exaggerating a bit to get the point across. It's not that God didn't want those things at all. It's that he wanted something else so much more that those things paled into insignificance. So what is that thing? Verse 8 tells us, God wants people who delight to do his will people who have his law in their very hearts. So how does this take us up another step of the mountain? The key is in the second line. You have given me an open ear. So notice that the first and the third lines go together, sacrifice and offering, burnt offering and sin offering. Those lines say essentially the same thing. Well, the second line corresponds with the rest of the stanza. Why is it that the speaker delights to do God's will? Why is it that the law is within his heart? It's because God has given him an open ear. What was God's work in the first two stanzas? It was rescue. What is God's work in this third stanza? It is transformation. If a person has an open ear, it's because God has made it open. If a person delights to do God's will, it's because God has given him or her that delight. If a 
If the law is within a person's heart, it's because God has put it there. All of these things are God's work. Perhaps what is written in the scroll of the book refers to this promise from Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. So how does this take us, our next step up the mountain? Well, the first stanza said, God has done a wonderful thing. He rescued me when I waited for him, and I'm going to tell about it. The second stanza said, God has done a wonderful thing. He blesses all who trust in him, and I'm going to tell about it. Stanza three says, God has done a wonderful thing. He's given me an open ear. But there's something missing. What is it? All right, I'm going to lead you up to it. And I want you all to say it real loud. So stanza one. God has done a wonderful thing. I waited for him and he rescued me. And I'm going to tell about it. Stanza two. God has done a wonderful thing. He's, uh, he blesses and rescues all who trust in him. And I'm going to tell about it. Stanza three. God has done a wonderful thing. He's given me an open ear. And I'm going to tell about it. Welcome to stanza four. Uh, we don't see it in stanza three because David devotes a whole stanza to this, but we can summarize up with the word testimony. We're at the top of the mountain. We're at the center of the chiasm. We're at the place where we would expect the author to put his strongest emphasis. And we shouldn't be surprised from what we've seen so far that it involves telling others about God's wonderful works. In this stanza, David basically says the same thing five times. He says it positively. He says it negatively. He says it negatively. He says it positively. And then he says it negatively one more time, just to round out with a nice echo from where he started. So let's read it. Verse 9. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Why is this testimony so important? It's because God delivers his saints so others will see and trust him. So, we've climbed to the top through stanzas one through four, and now we're ready to go down the other side. But going down isn't the same as going up, and our uh, psalm takes an unexpected turn. We can summarize verses 11 and 12 this way. God's work, mercy. David begins with a statement of confidence in verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. David has confidence in God's work, but this time it's a work of mercy. Why is this mercy needed? 
We find out in verse 12. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. We learn a great deal about this stanza by comparing it with its counterpart, stanza three. And I'd like us to observe three things. First, David's need for mercy comes despite God's work of transformation. In this life, the transforming work that God does in our hearts never brings us all the way to perfection. We never outgrow our need to repent. Second, David's attitude comes from God's work of transformation. Why is he so distressed about his sin? Why does his heart fail? It's because God has given him the desire to do God's will and and to delight in it. And when David sees that he's failed to do it, it distresses him deeply. Why, uh, Why is it that his heart fails? God has put his law within David's heart. But when David sees that he's failed to keep that law, his heart sinks. Only those who have been transformed by God's grace have this attitude toward their own sin. Third, David's confidence comes from God's work of transformation. God has taken the initiative to claim David as his own. So David is saying of himself something like what Paul said to the Philippians. I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what does that tell us? If you are Christ's, God delights in you even when you blow it. His steadfast love is not dependent on our performance. So when you blow it, and you will, I do all the time, what do we do? We come to him. We confess it. We ask his forgiveness, and then we go forward in the confidence that he has forgiven. We live in the confidence David expresses. O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. God has claimed you as his own, and he will not let you go. He will hold us fast. So, the theme going down the mountain is a little bit different than the theme going up. The theme going up is God delivers his saints so that others will see and trust him. And it means two things for us. We need to wait for the Lord, and we need to tell about his rescue. Going down, we see that God rescues his saints even from situations caused by their own sin. God rescues his saints even from situations caused by their own sin. And it means two things for us. Confess your sin and then wait confidently for God's rescue. So let's take the next step down. 
stanza six, verses 13 through 15. This is a contrast with stanza two. Up in stanza two, verses four and five, we saw blessing and testimony. Well, here in verses 13 through 15, we see evil and coming shame. But it's good news because it's shame upon David's adversaries. We learn here that David's sins are not his only problem. He is attacked by those who are only too happy to see him fall. In verse 5, we heard David proclaiming God's wondrous deeds. But in verse 16, we see people saying, aha, aha. They're proclaiming David's failures. The result is very different. In verse 4, we see blessing upon the man who trusts the Lord. In contrast, verses 14 and 15 anticipate only shame upon those who attack the one who is trusting the Lord. So what does David do? He trusts the Lord and waits for him. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me, says verse 13. O Lord, make haste to help me. So, our theme is reinforced. God delivers his saints from situations, even situations caused by their own sin. Therefore, confess your sin and wait confidently for God's rescue. And that brings us to the final stanza, verses 16 and 17. We're back to the bottom. In the first stanza, we saw waiting, rescue, and testimony. In the last stanza, we see testimony, uh, rescue, and waiting. So let's hear the first, the testimony. The psalm began by looking back to something that had happened before. It ends by looking forward. Verse 16, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. It's looking forward to a testimony that will take place in the future. Then see the rescue. The psalm began by looking back at a rescue that took place in the past. It ends in the present. Verse 17, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. That is his present reality, and he is assured of the Lord's rescue. Then see the waiting. The psalm began by looking back. It ends in both the present and the future. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. David is waiting again, but he is confident that God will rescue him and that he will yet again sing, Great is the Lord. So, what do we learn from Psalm 40? We learn that God rescues his saints so that others will see and fear him. And that means two things for us. We need to wait for the Lord and we need to tell about his rescue. Second, we learn that God delivers his saints even from situations caused by their own sin. And that means two things for us. We need to confess our sin 
and then we need to wait confidently for him. In closing, oh, and by the way, then we need to tell about it. So, in closing, I'd like to make one final point. All of us have a story of deliverance to tell. All of us, that is, who are in Christ. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 10, put the words of our third stanza on the lips of Jesus himself. These words, Hebrews says, Jesus himself is speaking. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. The account in Hebrews says, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What David said in hyperbole, Jesus literally accomplishes. Jesus is the only one who perfectly delighted in doing God's will and never failed to do it. And Jesus became our sin offering. So it is literally true that God no longer requires the sacrifice of animals. An infinitely better sacrifice has been made once for all. So the testimony we have in common and that we celebrate every Sunday is that in Christ, God has drawn us up from the pit of destruction. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let the center of our psalm, verses 9 and 10, be true of us. Let us tell the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Let us not restrain our lips. Let us not hide God's deliverance within our hearts, but speak of his faithfulness and his salvation. Let us not conceal his steadfast love and faithfulness from the great congregation. This is our charge. And for those here who may not know this salvation through Jesus Christ, we want you to hear about it this morning. We uh, invite you to ask one of us to tell you more. We want you to have the same story of deliverance that we have. So let us close there and pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you hear the cry of those who wait for you. Please keep us faithful to wait for you in faithfulness. Thank you that you deliver us even from our own sin and from the messes we sin ourselves into. Keep us ever ready to confess our sin and ever confident that you forgive. Thank you that you put a song in our mouths to tell of your wondrous deeds. Make us faithful to proclaim the deliverance we have in Christ Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to your glory forever. Amen.